Can you imagine sitting in the pub chatting with your mates only to be interrupted by ads? Well, unfortunately, that does happen here at the Homebrew Pub because we're just trying to keep the lights on. However, if you would like to support us directly and get access to ad-free episodes of the Homebrew Pub, please head on over to our Patreon. You can find a link to that on our website, thehomebrewpub.com, and join our mug club. Again, our website, thehomebrewpub.com. I'll see you in the pub after the next couple of ads. Welcome to another episode of the Homebrew Pub, the only pub in existence where every beer on tap is made by a homebrewer. And on this ethereal plane, the Homebrew Pub will turn into the guest brewer's perfect brew pub. So please come in, grab a stool, and grab a pint. This week, joining me in the Homebrew Pub, this is a very special guest because I'm going to assume pretty much every single one of you listening own a edition of this book, and it is John Palmer, author of How to Brew. Hello. Hello. How are you? I'm good. How are you? Doing great. Doing great. Just uh, kicking kicking around on a Saturday morning, uh, avoiding chores. <laughs> I'm doing the same thing. <laughs> uh thank thank you so much for coming on this is absolutely a thrill because i got given your book 10 years ago when i first started homebrewing and it's just one of those things that we all go back to to like try and figure out something new or a new technique or if something's gone wrong with the beer like you've got that great off flavor section at the back and so um yeah it's it's just amazing to have you well, I'm, I'm glad to be here. It's always uh, always fun to get a chance to, to talk to, to other brewers. So my question is, how did you get into homebrewing? And then at what point were you like, I need to write a guide for other <laughs> homebrewers? Um, yeah. Uh, well, the I got into brewing because in college... Um, in northern Michigan and at Michigan Tech, we drank a lot of dark lagers, uh, what we uh, locally called Bach beers. Mm-hmm. And there was Michelob Dark, Stroh Dark, Leinenkugel, um, Bosch, and various brands. And I, I enjoyed the maltiness of the dark beers. Um, at some point during college, a friend of a friend gave me a homebrew to drink, and uh, it's like, oh, not bad. You can you can brew your own. That's interesting. A um, couple years later, I'm in California um, and uh, working and trying to find good beer, and there were no dark beers to be had. Everything was uh, Corona and bud dry and all these light beers and so uh yeah i thought well i know that home brewing is possible uh let's see if i can do this myself and so i started <laughs> i had to i had to go to the, the la library and and uh, you know check out books on brewing uh the internet didn't didn't quite exist yet and uh yeah it just kind of slowly slowly snowballed from there mm-hmm so what was the what was the first beer you ever brewed? Well, of course, 
by the time I actually took the plunge and actually tried to brew my first beer, I, of course, turned to an American light lager kit <laughs> in the effort to please my girlfriend. Um, and, <laughs> and it was a miserable beer. Um, just, you know, cidery and, you know, just what the hell is it? Mm-hmm. Um, I'm assuming you didn't have temperature control doing the lager. Correct. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, it, it fermented at, you know, 75 degrees in the apartment. <laughs> and um, and it used the yeasts at the time were barely a step up from bread yeasts. Um, and uh, so, yeah, I got this horribly cidery product and took it to the brew shop. And he goes, oh, that's that's good beer. And it's like, no, it's not. It's <laughs> bad beer. I know, I know what it tastes like. Um <laughs> So that got me started on trying to understand the brewing process and learning, you know, what went wrong, why it went wrong, and how to fix it. And again, this this was early, right around 1990, and uh, there were a few internet bulletin boards active at the time. So I wrote up a short three-page document called How to Brew Your First Beer, and posted it you know here's here's what i learned you know don't don't add three pounds of sugar don't you know (laughs) use the yeast that would tape to the top of the can um you know very basic stuff for the time but that that was how how to brew Mm -hmm. slowly took shape that's incredible and so like that was really the first edition of how to brew was an internet bulletin board yeah yeah so what kind of reactions were you getting to to that i post i was trying to think of the word yeah um it was it was very favorable um people liked the you know the step-by-step matter-of-fact way that i described things um that document grew to about i don't know five six pages um and i started emailing it all over the world um people that would request it from me. And then um, around 1995, oh well, and and of course along the way I started writing magazine articles for Zymergy and brewing techniques. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, and as as I learned more and wanted to explain more, people said, well, you should write a book. And so I started around 1995. And uh, that that was a horrible effort at first. Um, I, I was a, I wasn't a good writer, and uh, the, I learned better writing. And uh, and then my publisher went out of business, so I had the manuscript, I had pictures, and you know, I didn't want to self-publish at that time. Felt that that was um, I don't know. I was intimidated and, you know, just felt it wasn't a good idea. So I thought, well, the internet's new. Let's, let's publish this to the internet. Mm-hmm. And so around 1999 is when I finally opened the howtobrew.com website. And, uh, after six months or so, um, my wife convinced me to, uh, publish, self-publish a hard copy and uh, she wanted it ready in time for Christmas sales, and of course we missed that. But uh, <laughs> by the following June, 
um, yeah, the first edition of How to Brew uh, was published, and I was, I was quite proud of that book. Um, did really well for a number of years, and uh, had a, I had a pallet of books in my garage, and I'd have to spend every lunchtime uh, sh- you know, taking books over to the FedEx office to ship out to home brew shops. But, um, and then in 2005, I was talking to Ray Daniels at one of the homebrew cons, and he said, well, we'd like to, you know, to uh, work on, work with you. So that became the next edition of How to Brew, the Blue Book, mm-hmm. that many people are familiar with. Yeah, that's crazy. So, like, as you were, as you were writing the book, because um, obviously... As you as you write anything and create new editions, you're obviously updating information and and you know, tweaking what was best practice to from then to now. What were some of the biggest surprises you learned about homebrewing as you were writing the book that you were like, oh, okay, I really need to go back and correct this. <laughs> yeah, oh, there's there's so many. I think the biggest one was. Early on, I had I had this concept in my mind that lagering was some kind of oh physical transition of the yeast, where you know by lowering the temperature, the yeast would switch from you know fermentation to maturation, mm-hmm. and uh, it took a while to to understand that that wasn't the case. A uh, couple pointed conversations with people like Chris White and others, and uh, came to understand, you know, fermentation better. Um, five years later, ten years later, you know, uh, more conversations with yeast experts, um, you know, such as uh, Graham Stewart and others, uh, gave me. And so, between the Blue Book and the current. Uh, current edition, what I call the fourth edition, the yellow one, um, I really got a much better understanding of how yeasts work. Mm-hmm. And so understanding that fermentation and maturation are concurrent, um, understanding the three cycles of the yeast, uh, life cycles of yeast much better, that is the adaptation phase, um, the high growth phase, and then the stationary phase understanding that we as brewers need to create the fourth phase in that uh, cycle, and that's the maturation phase. In other words, we need to shepherd the yeast into cleaning up our beer Mm -hmm. if we really want that beer to be good. Um, And so, yeah, there was that. There was, oh, water, of course, was another (laughs) big one where over the years and many conversations with AJ Lang and, and others, uh, you know, I got a much better understanding of how water worked mm-hmm. and the chemistry involved. So those are just a couple examples. That's crazy. I got to say, like when I, when I started this podcast and obviously water is like 99% of the beer that we're drinking, but yep. I didn't expect water to come up so much in the conversations that I have. And I think it's like, I'm lucky I have fairly good water here. So I throw on a Camden tablet. I don't do any of the adjustments that other people do in other states. But yeah, yeah. it's it's just surprising to me how much water comes up. But it makes sense because it is such, like, it is the biggest part of the drink we're yeah. making. The nice thing about brewing is that it is 
it has this God-given robustness mm -hmm. to it. You know, it works. You know, and we've been doing it for thousands of years without knowing all the science. Um, I think it's pretty cool that much of modern science is founded on brewing science, mm -hmm. trying to understand how we can make better beer through the ages. So, yeah, it's, it's interesting to understand that uh, water adjustments been going on for at least 500 years in terms of, you know, choosing a different water source, filtering a water source, um, changing the ingredients to better work with a particular water source, and, um, you know, the invention of uh, different mashing methods uh, to work with water. Um, then finally water adjustment with salts, fertilization, mm -hmm. um, and then realizing that the pH scale, you know, and measurement method wasn't invented until like 1920. <laughs> um, so I, and I had a great conversation with Dr. Narcissus one time in the mid 2000s at a, at a brewing conference. And I asked him, it's like, so how did Pilsner beer become you know so popular how did it work so well without with such soft water to you know how did they how did they achieve good mash chemistry uh with such soft water um you know you would with 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 that you would expect high mash phs um you know good conversion but you know tendency to have astringent beers um, and haze, mm -hmm. and you know, whereas Pilsner beer was renowned for its clarity and and smooth taste, and he goes, "Oh, they added salts." And I said, "Oh, really?" And he goes, "Oh, yeah, Burtonization was high technology at the time." Uh, it's like, "Oh, okay, you know." So there goes that whole myth of you know brewing with distilled water or mountain spring water yeah. uh, to create Pilsner beer. No, they added salts to the water to get good mash chemistry to get a better beer yeah because then i mean so then my question and i'm not sure we know the answer but like i i live in colorado and so like causes marketing campaign is we use the freshest colorado river water but i'm just going to assume they're amending that with a lot of salts as well then yep <laughs> <laughs> yeah typically calcium chloride yep fair enough so, because of your book, um, and starting when you when you did, you've been pretty much at the center of um, the homebrewing world as it's gone from a few people trying it in the '90s with the the hot syrups to, you know, now it's this massive industry and like this massive worldwide hobby. Like, what has surprised you about the evolution of homebrewing? Um, I think, I think part of it is how it's, how it's kind of come full circle, um, from a predominantly home brewing activity, you know, thousand years ago, 500 years ago, uh, to commercialism, you know, in the last couple, 300 years or so. Um, and then, you know, the rise of home brewing again and craft brewing you know there's there has been this you know circling back to small batches 
it's interesting to understand that so many of the the guidelines and rules of brewing that we learned as you know young home brewers in the 90s and your work of course based off commercial brewing practice mm-hmm. large-scale brewing practice and so it's interesting to now understand that those scales um, you know demand different procedures um, different compromises and so you know I mean when I first started home brewing, um, I was shooting for 90% mash efficiency and watering efficiency and, you know, created all those uh, tables and charts on watering and so on. Um, when, you know, now we have brew in a bag mm-hmm. and I, ad- I advocate brew in a bag, no sparge, because if you're trying to make a really, you know, full flavored, tasty wort, that's the best way, mm-hmm. you know. Don't don't worry about sparging. Don't worry about trying to get that extra wort out of the grain bed and you know all of it into the kettle because you know you're saving fifty cents a dollar <laughs> on the batch. You know, yeah. ooh, you know, much nicer to have an extra half hour to an hour out of your brew day and make a richer tasting wort. Besides, mm-hmm. so yeah, there's there's a lot of things um, that are. You know the commercial brewers have to pursue findings and mm-hmm. you know every everything i mean there's so many different aspects that you know back at the home brewing scale don't really matter yeah i i yeah because i i used to do brew in a bag and then when i got more equipment i did go into like doing the batch sparging and everything but since going electric it's just like i don't want to like have to heat up a separate like yeah. pot of water over here like this is why i bought the electric system so i'm back to effectively brew in the bag and i love it because a it's it's just one less step to have to worry about but yeah. i can't really tell you that it's impacted the taste of my beer not doing that batch sparge with extra water for like another 10 minutes yeah yeah so yeah it's uh it's just a it's a great time saver so as you as you're brewing different beers though, do you use different methods of for brewing? Like if you're doing lager, do you do decoction or do you just use the same kind of process for every single beer that you're making then? I, I pretty much stick to every single the the same process. So typically, you know, single infusion. Um, I've had a succession of um, Blickman, um, you know, in. in uh, equipment over the years mm-hmm. and uh, you know the gas fired rim system and so on and temperature controllers and yeah you, you do multi-step you know rests <clears throat> with that equipment because it's so easy you just tap the temperature setting button a few times and mm-hmm. off you go um, recirculation and so on makes all that very easy um, these days I'm brewing in an all-in-one system mm-hmm. and uh I can do multi-step, you know, um, infusions, but it's with with today's malts, highly modified, um, easy to convert. There's really no reason to. Um, and that's another thing I've learned over the years is, you know, decoction mashing, multiple-step infusions. <clears throat> these were all methods to 
promote better starch conversion. Hmm. Um, if you take a step back and look at both the malting process and the mashing process as two sides of the same coin, you know, the, ex the conversion and extraction of starches to sugars uh, to, for fermentation, um, you know, what isn't accomplished during the malting step must be accomplished during the, the mashing step. Okay. Well, with today's malts, the malting step takes care of, you know, 70% of the whole process, whereas even 100 years ago, they were at 50%. And 100 years before that, they were maybe at 40% of the whole. So mashing had to do more, mm -hmm. you know, longer ago. Uh, today, malting, the modern malting, modern malts takes care of all that. And uh, a single temperature infusion is all that's needed hmm. to complete the process. That's crazy. And Yeah. And then, we, of course, we have a wide variety of specialty malts available to us these days to supply all the nuances of flavor that would have been developed by extended boils and, and such and decoctions, of course, you know, in years past. I had a friend who used to do decoction mashing and he was explaining it to me we're like yeah i'm not doing that 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 seems like way too much work so, <laughs> <laughs> um, you know it's everything's everything's worth doing for the fun of it yeah uh, but uh yeah no i'm i'm i i used to be a very uh for want of a better word i used to be a very active brewer like jumping up and down constantly checking my temperature and everything but as you were saying about going all in one, it's like, oh, it's a press of a button, and now I'm just gonna sit down and wait for my water to heat up, and this is yeah. kind of lovely. So, <laughs> my brew days are way more relaxed now. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yes, I, I've I've been through all the adventuresome brew days and and disastrous brew days, and, mm -hmm. you know, to last me a lifetime. Now I just want to take it easy. <laughs> take it easy, drink a good beer, and make a good beer. Yeah. So as we sit on the mystical realm of the homebrew pub, what beer are you going to add to the ever-growing tap list? I'm going to add a my my one of my favorite beers, the Dunkelbach. Mm. So uh, my Dunkelbach recipe consists of seventy percent uh, by weight Vienna malt, thirty percent by or sorry twenty percent by weight Munich malt. Um, Eight per seven and a half percent, roughly caramel malt, like a caramel 80 or 90, and then uh, two and a half percent uh, roast malt, like a roast barley, mm. as opposed to black malt or chocolate malt. I want a nice, clean, dry coffee character from the roast that doesn't really enter into the flavor of the beer but it provides that dry uh crisp backstop mm -hmm. to the sweetness of the other malts that sounds amazing and then yeah what what kind of hops are in uh, what what hops are you using in that as well i use uh you know some of the german uh land race hops mm -hmm. like um oh or the american equivalents like liberty mount hood crystal um you know, Hollertau, Middlefruz, it was one of them. Technonger was another one that was early on used. Um, 
And I'm only using about 30 IBUs in a 60-minute edition. You know, just a bittering edition only for bitterness. Um, no aroma additions, no whirlpool or dry hop additions. This is a malt-forward beer with just enough hop bitterness to balance uh, the sweetness. Um, looking around a 1060 OG uh, with 30 IBUs. That sounds absolutely delightful. It's a very easy drinking, quaffable beer, even though it's <laughs> up six percent. Those those are the most dangerous beers of all when you forget what the ABV is. Yeah, yeah. Uh, well, we'll be putting that recipe in the show notes as well, so you can brew and drink along with us. But uh, yeah, I will probably be making that in the near future, just because the weather's gonna start getting cooler, hopefully, and uh, that just yeah, that sounds wonderful for a for a cooler evening yeah so then on the on the flip side of that what is the worst beer that you ever brewed like that you were like this was a mistake and is never going in my book <laughs> <laughs> unless uh, you're putting it in as a warning yeah i'd have to say the worst beer I ever brewed is that very first one <laughs> um, that cidery mess tasted like pond water mm. um but uh, one of the one of the best beers I ever brewed um, was, you know, I think typical of the way things go for many home brewers. Um, I was brewing a Belgian double, mm -hmm. and in the you know winter here in Southern California, um, daytime or you know average temperatures usually in the low sixties. So I said, well, I'm just going to ferment this in the garage. It'll, you know, the temperature swing in there is, pre is pretty low. Um, about mid-60s, it should work great. Well, of course, I pitched the yeast, put it out there, and the next day a heat wave hit, and it got up to 90, <sighs> which meant, like, temperatures in the low 80s in the garage. So um, the beer finished, and I tasted it, and it was phenolic. And while I had some friends have it, and they said, oh, yeah, this is really good, you know? It's like, I don't like phenolics. Mm -hmm. To me, that's just a, a sign of bad homebrew management. I ju it just bugged me. <laughs> um, but I had, um, oh, and I also, that was a, a cherry double. I had added um, like a quart or two of concentrated cherry juice mm. to the fermenter for secondary fermentation. And I think maybe that's when the, the temperature climb spiked. But anyway, so I had this cherry double that was a little bit phenolic. Um, so I decided to sour it. Mm. I, it was, I had racked it to a keg. I opened up the keg, threw in some uh, wood chips that we got at Homebrew Con that had uh, Russian Rivers sour culture on them. Mm. and uh, you know, blew some air into the headspace of the keg and then sealed it back up and let it sit. Mm -hmm. And it sat there for a year. <laughs> and, uh, home, and then the Southern California Homebrew Fest was coming up, so I thought, well, let's, let's see how that turned out. And so I racked it to another keg, and it was beautiful. It was mm. this light cherry sour. The phenolics were gone, and... Uh, yeah, they went went quickly at the homebrew fest. That's amazing, and I, I just love that 
you had in your mind a bad beer and through like time and just like knowing some science you were able to save it which is like just really impressive yeah. like, if i had a bad beer i'd have been like and down the toilet it goes so. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. um, unfortunately so many you know it's i don't drink as much beer as i used to when i was young and and so very often i'll you know you you're i get the idea to brew something <laughs> and you know it's time to keg it and i look at my you know, refrigerator, kegerator, and it's like, I need a keg. What what can I get rid of? Yeah. And I've got to dump out, you know, <laughs> half a keg of a beer that's, you know, close to a year old. And wow. Like, well, okay. Optimized <laughs> 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 anyway. <laughs> so with, with like the, knowing that and with the amount of brewing you've done over the years, like, is there a type of beer you just won't brew through personal taste? Like, you just say, that's, that's not going to be good. Yeah, I I don't like German wheats, mm. Hefeweizen, Weizen, um, just because of the phenolics. I just it's a flavor I don't care for. Same with the Belgian pale ales and so on. Mm-hmm. Um, I like Belgian sours. I like the Trappist styles, um, and I can be. I've never I've never brewed a Belgian triple, but I've judged them of course, and I don't mind them. Yeah, but again, it's I'm looking for. A malty, um, you know, toasty bread crust, a little bit of sweetness, or West Coast IPAs. Mm-hmm. Um, another, you know, that's my, kind of my go-to category because you know, living here in Southern California, they're readily available. Yeah, um, not so keen on the hazies, though. And I think it may it's just the aesthetics. It just, you know, those. <laughs> Hazy uh, beers just don't really appeal to me much. Yeah, visually, the flavors aren't bad, but I prefer the more traditional. You know what I consider like old a clean school. look. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, no the the New England hazy style is like one of the big debates on on this show because <laughs> so like you you fall into two camps and I think you've been the most neutral out of all of them of like I don't like the look but the taste is fine whereas you get other people like oh it's the greatest style of all time and you get others like I hate this only yeah, give me West yeah. Coast so so thank you for being open to the flavor I I mean I do like them but I agree with you because occasionally like they put it down in front of you and it just looks like a glass of orange juice. Yeah, and it's yeah. not the most appetizing <laughs> yeah. look for a beer. It's funny. There are so many variations on that style um, where they where they add lactose mm-hmm. to them. And that style is one I really don't like. Yeah. I don't like an overly sweet beer. You know, where it looks like you've taken that glass of orange juice and poured in half a glass of milk, too. Yeah. You know, um, yeah, those those don't appeal to me. It was funny. I um, so uh, Martin, who does the homebrew challenge, he sent me some beers, and one of them was a New England IPA. And he wrote to me going, "Okay, I sent this to you. Um, a friend of mine warned me though his can was oxidized and it came out purple. Um, so um, just just be aware when you're like pouring it. And it was it was fine. It was actually a very beautiful beer." But I was kind of disappointed it didn't come out purple. I was really yeah, excited yeah. to see that. <laughs> <laughs> so as we sit here in, in the mystical homebrew pub, 
what would your brew pub be called and what would the aesthetic be like? I think I've, I've always thought that the Moose and Squirrel <laughs> would be a good name for a pub. That is a lovely name for a pub. Well, what inspired the Moose and Squirrel? Um, I, I like the old, you know, Bullwinkle cartoons as a kid. Um, the, uh, you know, the asides and, you know, the, the corny jokes and stuff. Mm -hmm. Um, yeah, yeah, just, I, I, but I've always thought that that was a, you know, you, you see so many British pubs, you know, like the, the goose and, you know, the goose and stoat and, yeah. you know, there's always this this and name mm -hmm. and so yeah moose and squirrel appealed to me and i thought maybe and and moose are like somehow just in, inherently comical so i would <laughs> i would have you know comical pictures of moose and you know moose heads mounted on the wall and stuff like that oh i love that we actually have a ceramic moose head mounted in our front room <laughs> Uh, <laughs> very good. So now I want to get a squirrel head just in honor of this name for a pup because I think that's absolutely lovely. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that'd be great. We we do actually have a brass hair head on on the opposite. And he's got a monocle, so maybe the sister pup could be the moose and hair. There you go. There you go. Well, that sounds absolutely amazing. So, um, yeah, everyone, come down to the moose and squirrel and grab a pint with us. Um, thank you so much for coming on. Um, where can people find you and and get your book if they don't have it already? I'm often at homebrew competitions, although uh, let's see what the next one will be. Uh, the Great American Beer Festival. Oh, I will be there. Yeah, I'll be there for that. And then a couple of weeks later, I'll be judging Copa Cerveza, which is basically Mexico's GABF. Oh, wow. That's a lot. That's a lot of fun, um, and uh, then um, I guess that's about all I've got planned for the rest of the year. Uh, next year, you know, more uh, local competitions, regional competitions, and probably find me there. Yeah. As far as my books, um, you know, always always check out your lo local homebrew shop or the online shops, or you know, in a pinch, Amazon. Mm-hmm. And then you've got your website, howtobrew.com as well. Yeah, and that's, I, I've got to revise that one of these days. It's its pretty antiquated, um, and uh, but it's there. Again, thank you so much for coming on. This was absolutely awesome. Well, thank you. I, I really enjoyed it. It was yeah. great, Andrew. Huge thank you to John um, for coming on. That was absolutely fantastic. If you do not own How to Brew, go and get How to Brew. It is, I mean, it is such a great resource for everything homebrewing. Uh, there's a lot of great technical information in there. Um, and it really is a book that if you've got a question about why your beer tastes the way it does, it will have the answer. So please go to your homebrew shop and pick up a copy of how to brew or if you know someone who's getting into homebrewing go and buy them the the book for their birthday that'll be very lovely of you and of course thank you so much for listening if you could leave us a five-star review wherever it is you get your podcast that'll just help other people find the show if you want to reach out to us possibly come on and share a pint with me 
You can reach us at our website, thehomebrewpub.com, or email landlord at thehomebrewpub.com, or on social at thehomebrewpub on Instagram and Twitter. And if, like me, you hate those annoying ads, well, we've got to keep the lights on here at the Homebrew Pub somehow. So consider joining our Patreon and becoming a Mug Club member. For $3 a month, you'll get access to ad-free versions of the episodes. But until then, grab your favorite pint, put your feet up, relax, don't worry, and have a homebrew. Till next time, cheers.